0: Welcome to the Hydric & Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hydric is the premier global provider of senior level executive search and leadership consulting services. Diversity and inclusion, leading through tumultuous times, and building thriving teams and organisations are among the core issues we talk with leaders about every day, including in our podcasts. Thank you for joining the conversation. Welcome to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. I'm William Bowne, a partner of financial services in the Hydrogen Struggles Hong Kong office, where I help to lead our regional efforts in financial technology, Web3, and digital assets. I'm joined by my colleague, David.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm David Ho. I'm the regional managing partner for our industrial practice here in APAC and the Middle East, yeah. also the partner in charge of the Hong Kong office for Hydrogen here in Hong Kong and also run our CEO and board practice here in Hong Kong.
0: In today's podcast, we are excited to speak with King Leung. King is the Head of Financial Services and FinTech, as well as the Co-Head of Carbon Neutrality of InvestHK, a department of the Hong Kong SAR government, responsible for foreign direct investment that attracts and supports overseas enterprises and investors to expand and scale their business in Hong Kong. Prior to joining the government, King had a diverse private sector background as a serial tech entrepreneur, angel investor, and FinTech lecturer in Asia. He also served as visiting lecturer in fintech at Institute for China Business of the University of Hong Kong in China, where he has an extraordinary exposure to the China fintech ecosystem. Thank you very much for joining us today.
2: It's a great pleasure. So
0: thanks for having me. To kick off this conversation, King, could you walk us through your first exposure to this sector and what drew you into this space originally?
2: Well, this is a long story, but let me give you a short one. Essentially, I started off in consulting where my first major financial services client was Barclays Bank in the UK. And one thing that uh, brought me back to Asia was from raising seed money from Credit Suisse in having them to set up a data company. The director at the time, that gentleman has been very progressive-minded. But he felt that with the data from different pockets, not just the in-house Credit Suisse data. But I'm talking about like third-party external data that Credit Suisse will be able to paint what we call the customer profile today. So that more about the preferences, sub graphics of the customers, they can sell more wealth management products to them. That was like 20 years ago. So I started a data company for Credit Suisse in which I've been branching out in serving other companies including in insurance, in consumer finance. That's what got me started. Later on, I also tried my hand on angel investment, where I tried to invest into one insurtech company, in which I thought that there's just so much um, inefficiencies in the insurance sector. So at the time, I felt that that's a great, great place to be. But then at the same time, I realized that to be a successful angel investor, you have to have really deep pockets, so then I started looking and thinking about the broader picture. And somehow, maybe this is my fate. I saw that the government was looking for somebody to head up fintech. And I thought, well, that's a great great place to be to elevate my exposure and my understanding of the broader issues. And perhaps I can sort of park my personal interest as an angel investor later on. So now I've been on the job for four years. And this has been an extremely fulfilling experience. I just love I've been doing.
0: That's great. And I mean, how have your prior roles informed you in what you're doing now? What kind of leadership activities do you think you need to show in your position? And how has the position challenged
2: and got the best out of you? Well first of all, from a functional skill set standpoint, I believe that I had quite a lot of diverse experience from before. As I mentioned, I've been working with clients in different segments, in wealth management, insurance, lending, and so on. So I got a pretty good appreciation of the different aspects of financial services. At the same time, because I started several tech companies, the one funded by Credit Suisse was the first one. I started a few afterwards. So I also came from the entrepreneur background as a founder. So that actually gave me the more bonding and also credentials in which I'm able to connect quite well with many founders, because again, I've been in their boats, so I can empathize with them. So in a way, that also allowed me to communicate much more effectively, understand what kind of needs would be helpful to them. So in a way, I think from a functional skill standpoint, and also prior experience, that matches arguably almost like as perfect as it gets. Now, obviously, now that I'm in governments, that requires a different skill set, and that is stakeholder management, because in governments... There's just so many stakeholders, the policy bureau, the senior officials, the regulators, the HMA, the SFC. There are also the different investors. Some of them are related governments, some of them are the private sector, the universities. The diversity of people and leaders I have to engage with to make sure that I'm able to address to their various needs. That require quite a lot of thinking, empathy, and good planning, too, to make sure that uh, we don't step on those. We can basically serve, serve them in a way that can meet their needs.
0: Thank you. And just talking a bit about, I guess, what we're here to talk about today, can you share on Hong Kong's relationship with the crypto industry? What's the situation been on the ground historically? How has it evolved over time? What's new today?
2: Yeah, it's a big question for the benefits of the audience perhaps I can segment the journey into three phases. Now, the first phase is the year 2018 to probably 2022. Basically, Hong Kong had been quite progressive, in which we were one of the first jurisdictions that launched some kind of framework and guidelines for the crypto exchange to do business in Hong Kong. Now, so at the time, it has been opt-in. So therefore, for exchanges that decided not to apply for a license, they can still do business in Hong Kong. So Hong Kong has been pretty open-minded. But at the same time, we'd like to help the industry to differentiate themselves. So for those players that want to go with the mainstream framework to give the extra layer of protection to the investors, they decided to apply for a license in which we had two firms, OSL and Hashkey, that have done that. But of course, I think that's a period in which for a lot of other jurisdictions have been relatively more relaxed, in which many firms operated without license. So that created the, I would say, regulatory arbitrage. Therefore, for firms that decided to go the so-called proper routes to apply for a license, in all fairness, they were put in a more disadvantaged position because of a lot of the control, the check and balances around them. And naturally, because Hong Kong has been very firm in a way of protecting investors. The exchanges ask to segregate the investors' assets away from theirs. Naturally, a lot of players down in the the global space, they decided not to adopt that approach before 2022. Now, so that's, I would say, phase one. Stage two is when the government decided to announce the super welcoming policy stance towards the digital asset industry. On October 31st, 2022, from that point onwards to, let's say, end of May. So this is what I would categorize as phase two. During this period, this is also from the backdrop of several unfortunate incidents, such as the FTX debacle, the Three Arrows, like the BlockFi, the Celsius alike. So that have created quite a lot of scary emotions. People lost money that they could not recover in a way that also put Hong Kong in spotlight. That we've the selling firm protection of investors' stance. So then a lot of players are now looking at Hong Kong as the gold standard. Several firms like the hash alike, like they felt vindicated. But at the same time, to be honest, many players in the crypto space were skeptical. That, well, okay, so mainland China banned crypto. So is it for real? that Hong Kong is really opening up for the uh, exchanges and also crypto firms at large. So that, therefore, the Hong Kong government, together with the regulators and so forth, we've been launching the different programs in terms of giving approvals and different initiatives being launched in a way to not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. We use actual projects to show to the world that we are serious about this. In the interest of time, I won't be too long-winded on this, but let's just say that at the end of middle part of December last year, the CSOP, a Chinese asset manager, almost like the smaller version of BlackRock, they have launched the Bitcoin futures-based and also Ethereum futures-based ETFs. So that has created quite a big response in the market, not just so much about the launch of ETFs, crypto ETFs, which is first in Asia, but more importantly, the issuer is actually a Chinese firm. But that entity is based of Hong Kong under the Hong Kong regulation, so that's sent a very strong message to the market of the one country, two systems. And then the other things would be like the governments also issue tokenized green bonds in the middle part of February this year. So this is also the first in the world that the governments ourselves we are launching a green bond of hundred million US, mm-hmm. but we tokenize them to show the world that we are doing it as opposed to talking about it. So this is like phase two. The phase three is after June 1st, because June 1st is when our regulator, the Securities and Futures Commission, SFC, launched the enhanced version of the crypto exchange, in which now they are opening up to retail. So this also created quite a lot of attention in media and in the crypto space. Of course, I think this is with some guardrails, I wish the exchange is asked to go through those tests and their different measures to ensure that it's okay where we are opening up uh, crypto for retail, but to the right retail and investors.
0: That was really helpful. Thank you. And just focusing on one of those innovations, the G7 recently met and discussed financial digitalization and developing a reliable, stable and transparent global payment system, as well as about sort of CDBC, Central Bank Digital Currencies. Could you give some insight to where Hong Kong is in its plans to develop a CDBC?
2: Now, I think for folks who have been following the CBDC for some time, you might have come across different media coverage that the Hong Kong de facto central bank, HMA, Hong Kong Monetary Authority, has been working very closely with People's Bank of China, the Central Bank of China, the Bank of Thailand, the Central Bank of Thailand, and also Central Bank of UAE, together with BIS, the Bank of International Settlement, for a number of years on the CBDC research. They've been writing like white papers and publishing the results of their pilots and so forth. So the first thing I want to say is that Hong Kong has always been at the forefront on CBDC research pilots with other major partners like VIS. So that's step one. Now, step two is that uh, actually Hong Kong MA on the 18th of May this year. So this is quite recent. They have launched this Hong Kong dollar, which is basically the Hong Kong CBDC in another pilot in which HMA has invited 16 firms across different sectors, financial background, payment background, technology background, to participate in the pilot. Now, in pilot for what, you may ask? Actually, the CBDC, from a technological standpoint, we've done enough work that we know that it should work. But then the question is whether or not the citizens or the SMEs, the large corporates, would actually use it. It's the commercial use cases that HMA care about. So that's why instead of just thinking how they do this, they felt that's important. They involved the private sector, so it's almost like a crowdsourcing of ideas. So the pilot that they are now working on is essentially trying to test out different commercial use cases, so that by the time that the pilot is then we know how they may play out in different parts of the society.
0: You talk a lot about innovation there. Broadly speaking, how is Hong Kong trying to find that right balance between stability, financial and regulatory, and allowing innovation to thrive? How do you think that gets balanced
2: out? The short answer is there are numerous things that we've done. I will broadly summarize them in three key approaches. Now, first is communication. Now, I think this may sound a bit cliche, but then but this is so important. Because at the government, we cannot possibly know everything. Well, obviously, we have a lot of respect for the industry practitioners. So that's why, the, particularly the current administration, led by our financial secretary, Mr. Paul Chan. So he has led numerous initiatives in which we invited the private sector in a closed-door meeting setting, so that we are able to talk freely about what the market participants see as opportunities, And what are the things that government can do so that to facilitate a more conducive environment? And then we just very candidly share with them about plan for things that we don't know. We tell them we don't know, but we work on them. So I think those kind of complications have given the private sector a lot of confidence that they feel that the government is open-minded. They understand our constraints. So for example, things like protecting investor interests is something that we need to do our job but then we can find a way to allow the businesses to do business without protecting investors, then definitely we consider. So the communication is one. Secondly, there are also different sandboxes at the regulators, the HMA, the SFC, the insurance authority. So firms can basically try out different things at the sandboxes. This kind of structure mechanism has been around for a number of years. And third, HMA, for example, as a very progressive-minded regulator, They've also been pushing direct tech agenda because they recognize that while we are allowing and fostering more innovation, then things happen more quickly. Because you're talking about like AI-driven decision models, and then you have people transacting online. So things are happening much more quickly. So doing compliance work manually probably wouldn't cut it. So that's why the HMA has been very progressive in encouraging the industry, mainly in the banks to adopt different red tech solution so that to help them to do compliance and regulatory compliance and monitoring in a much more efficient way. Those are the three approaches that I would like to highlight.
1: King, thanks for that. I mean, that's very revealing as to what Hong Kong's doing. A big part of your role though, is almost being the spokesperson, the salesman for Hong Kong in the sector. So I'm curious, what are the typical things, topics or conversation pieces that people will ask you? Everyone's doing lots of things. How
2: do they view Hong Kong? It's not just myself, not just in Hong Kong, but it's really a concerted effort. To be honest, I think the world has gone through a lot in the digital assets. Last year was hard for a lot of people. Mm. So that people have heard the word that Hong Kong opens up. As I just mentioned, at first, people were skeptical. Mm. So then the question was, well, is it for real? And then we assure them and said, look, Now, given how visible we are, we are all for the news. If we don't get the blessing from Beijing, there's no possible way that Hong Kong can do this. So that's why that we do get the support from the leaders in the mainland. Now, but then to be a bit more rational, right? So why would the mainland allow Hong Kong to do this? So that's why this is where I would like to elaborate, which is also what I've been sharing with a lot of friends and partners around the world. Now, first of all, we think about why crypto was banned in the first place in the mainland. That's because of the fear of capital outflow. And this is like open secret. Everybody understand this. Now, but then we think about the nature of Hong Kong as an international financial center. Hong Kong has always had this like free flow of capital anyway. So the fear of capital outflow simply doesn't apply to Hong Kong. So this is our point number one. Now, and secondly, we think about the one country, two systems. And last year. It was the 25th anniversary for Hong Kong returning to the mainland. So perhaps we want to send a message to the world that that formula still works and still applies. So it's actually, again, it's not about talking to talk, it's walking to walk. So yeah. by allowing Hong Kong doing this, again, this is not from the Beijing leader, but it's just the so almost like the general consensus among the business community. If it felt, well, this is great. This is a great way to show that Hong Kong does operate differently with our own independence in our regulations. So these are the reasons that it's not just, oh, trust me, but these are things that make sense.
1: So based on everything that you've been doing, um, when you look at it today, what are the kinds of digital asset organizations that are looking to come to Hong Kong? And when they evaluate Hong Kong, what do you think is sort of front and center for them in terms of picking Hong Kong versus other destinations or jurisdictions?
2: Well, the short answer is almost the entire value chain of the digital asset space that have been talking to us and are now either already in Hong Kong or they're in the process of coming to Hong Kong. For the centralized exchanges, they would like to shore up the among the investors, the shareholders, and so forth. So they would like to get a license from a jurisdiction that gets the respect. Because of the IFC status of Hong Kong, the license from Hong Kong means a lot. And particularly last year, when the whole world was upside down, Hong Kong was quite okay. So that really put Hong Kong on the top of the list, when it comes to decentralized exchanges and the firms operating, brokerages and so forth, to require a license, that they then now come to Hong Kong to get a license. So exchanges, the prime brokers, so those are the first wave. Now, but then, of course, now that the big boys are coming in, the other firms that serve these players are also coming in. Players like custodians, the market makers, the web-free funds, or funds that specialize in blockchain and digital assets, they're also coming in because they feel that they want to be in the center of the action.
1: So it's the full range. From our perspective, our particular interest, obviously, is around talent and people, because a lot of what you're talking about is relatively newer, and the talent in the space is very mobile, is what we see a lot of. Um, clearly the government here is very aware of that and the admission scheme for talent technology selection is very important, tech task. I just want to get your views on how that's working, what you're learning from that. Is it getting the right kind of talent?
2: Well, the short answer is absolutely. Let me answer a question in two ways. First, just now that we talk about the different type of digital asset related firms coming in, and naturally when the exchanges, the foundation are coming in, they need developers. So that's why for certain firms, they have already moved some of their developers to Hong Kong via the various talent schemes. They're coming in, you know, like 20, 50, 100, 200 people, basically by waves. So this is definitely uh, market-driven. This is the first point I'm trying to make. And then the other aspect of the talent scheme is that we have been making it so easy that we have taken away the requirement that person who applies for the talents visa have to have a job in Hong Kong. So those people meet the basic requirements, they can just come in. They come in and then they can take their time to find the right opportunity in which they are plenty.
1: Bringing the talent in is one issue. What about the homegrown talent here? How do we speed up that pool of available talent as well?
2: Now talents have to understand the work culture of Hong Kong and mainland China, which arguably is a little bit different. So therefore, FSTB, they have put into the policy in the last year saying that they're going to fund some firms in, for example, in Shenzhen to hire some of the interns from the universities in Hong Kong for a number of months to basically give them the flavor of working in China and particularly for tech firms, fintech firms, as they hired these talents from Hong Kong and these young folks got exposed to the different way of doing business and then by the time they finish the internship, they come back to Hong Kong. Then they can bring like a whole new perspective and a set of skill sets. So this is one example. Another example is, now of course, CyberPort has run different programs, like training programs, together with, for example, Hong Kong Institute of Bankers, like FinTech Competency Scheme. It's some kind of certification program to make sure that we're able to train the talents with the latest knowledge. And third, the University of Hong Kong, we have also partnered with ANZ Group, in which they have started this program with World Bank's IFC many years ago under the name of 10 times 1,000 the vision is to train 1,000 fintech leaders in the next 10 years.
0: I think as we bring this conversation to a close, and I wanted to ask you just one final question. And looking ahead, what specific skill sets and capabilities will be most important for leaders in this space to help their organizations meet their strategic goals?
2: I think the short answer is I will also put this in a stakeholder management because obviously Hong Kong has lots of very talented people in finance field. Again, digital asset space is global. So a number of players running global business who have seen the world. So I think functionally these guys are fine. They know what they're doing and doing very well. As we move forward, it's not just about the company closing the door and just do their own thing independently is about really integrating into the broader community ecosystem. So naturally, for the business leaders, sometimes they probably have to put aside some personal time to be more active in running associations. So for example, there's a new association called Web Free Harbor. They were founded by a number of very well-known Web Free leaders in Hong Kong. In doing so, as they are more actively engaging with the industry players, then they become a very credible voice. And then they can also represent the private sector to talk to the governments to give us feedback. So that kind of ongoing say stakeholder management and communication is vital for us to basically build up Hong Kong to be a leading web-free and digital asset hub in the world.
0: King, thank you. Really appreciate your time today. That was um, really helpful and really insightful.
2: Thanks for having me, William and David.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future-shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.